Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Well, when you try to reduce that down into a simple sentence, uh, you could say that Israel could confidently pray for renewal or restoration or revival, call it what you will, because of God's acts and attributes. And just follow the outline of the psalm. Uh, It begins with God's past performance, verses 1 through 3. Last, last, not last week, but week before last, we looked at Psalm 84. And if you remember in Psalm 84, the psalmist is looking back wistfully on what had been. In Psalm 85, it's a remembrance not of what has been, but of what God did, how he dealt with his people, how he graciously and, and mercifully forgave and covered their sin. Uh, It's an echo of Psalm 32, isn't it? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It certainly echoes that. In verse 2 of Psalm 85, the idea you forgave is, is another word for you carried away or you took away or you bore and, and it's alluding to the scapegoat. Remember that on the day of atonement, according to Leviticus 16. The high priest, you know, kills the sacrificial offering. He puts blood on, on everything around, and, and, and he's, he's sanctifying everything on this one day of the year of his atonement. There are two goats there, one that is sacrificed and one that is not. The Vatican's important in, in the day of atonement. Gets around to the scapegoat. This goat was the sacrifice. The high priest lays his hand on the head of the goat and confesses the sin of Israel. And then the Hebrew goat, the man has got the goat, leads the goat out, carries it way out into the wilderness, turns it loose, never to be seen again in Israel. Jesus is both sacrifice and scapegoat. He is the one whose blood was shed 
that we can be forgiven. It's the basis, the ground of our justification by which we have peace with God. He's also the scapegoat. He bore our sin. It was all placed on him. And he took it and he paid for it on Calvary. And it's never going to be seen. It's been carried away. Forever dealt with. Forever done with. That's what they're looking back to. God's past performance. What God had done. It's what we look back to in it. But then in verses 4 through 7, they make a petition, and the petition is dealt with their present predicament. And we're not told what that predicament was, what the situation, the historical setting of it is. We don't know. But it involved their apparent falling away from God. My bet would be on idolatry, that they had fallen back into idolatry yet again because they were always falling, you know, going after other gods. And uh, they're always being tempted to do it, and it seems like they were just frequently falling into it. And then they had to face the consequences. And this appears to be one of those times, exactly which one nobody knows. There would be idolatry. They'd be tempted. They'd fall into it. And there'd be consequences. I had a friend, the late Sonny Samuel, uh, was an elder in the church. And uh, he was fond of saying, You I can withstand anything but temptation. <laughs> and he'd begin. That's the way Israel was. It's where you and I are all too often in it. And so they cry out to God to restore them. And they ask these three rhetorical questions. And they're rhetorical questions. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? And the answer to each, based on his previous performance, is an obvious, of course he will. And so they petition him to do it again. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. following that, there's a prophetic pause. Now this is a song. It's written for the choir master. Up to this point, the choir has been singing. It's been this grand, glorious, you know, the whole choir full blast singing. And then all of a sudden it stops. And then a single voice, this solo voice is raised up. This prophetic voice, if you will. He will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. It's the voice of the prophet listening for God's word. Wait, I'll stop and I'll listen. And then he has it and he 
gives it to the people. And then there's a recital and a response of, uh, to God's personal perfections in verses 10 through 13. His steadfast love and faithfulness to his people will meet. Earth and heaven be reconciled. God's people's confidence will be rewarded. And we'll save the exposition of that for another day. Suffice it to say that it's taken place in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. But we can say this, because of God's personal perfection and past performance, Israel could sing, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God will restore, revive, renew us, his people. And they could bang on it. That was all way over 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. In a different culture, a different place, a different time, you and I are entitled to ask, so what? Interesting story, but what's it have to do with Christians in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in the year 2017? And the answer is that you and I, what it means is you and I have good grounds for seeking a renewal, restoration, revival, whatever you want to call it. We're in basically the same predicament as uh, Israel, uh, if you look around. Uh, yeah, it's basically what Israel's was. Our recurring sin and our complacency and the resultant downward spiral in uh, our spirituality. In other words, we should seek renewal, restoration, revival, simply because we need it. Uh, I got a note here to just say, look at the world, at the church around you. I won't do that. Look at yourself. Are you happy with your present spiritual condition? Are you, are you thrilled with it? Is it what it ought to be, do you think? Is it what you'd like it to be? Can you fix it? By yourself, I mean. Multiply that by every brother and sister in Christ on the face of this earth. And you see the downward spiral. And sin and complacency bring us into spiritual decline, no matter where we start out. And it's, we're always on kind of like this. We have an ongoing need for personal and corporate revival. We need a counteracting force against sin and complacency and against the resulting spiritual decline. But we can at least do this. We can confidently, confidently pray. In fact, in the words of Pray in the words of the old hymn. Revive us again, fill each heart with thy love. May each soul be kindled with fire from above. And God hears. God's personal perfections 
His past performance are ground for confidence. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations, Psalm 100. In his goodness, love, and faithfulness, will he not? Will he not restore the church, his well-beloved son, purchased with his own blood? He's done it before. It's a whole study in the history of revivals uh, in the world. In the Old Testament there were three pretty much main revivals. We just got through studying the first one as we preached our way through the first half of the book of Exodus. That was a great revival in the life of Israel. And in fact, when the nation Israel came into being, it's a great revival among God's people. And there's a time of David and Solomon, the golden age of Israel. It's a time of a spiritual reviving. And, and there's a time when they were delivered from the exile in Babylon. Another spiritual time. Great time of spiritual revival. But all through the Old Testament, you find smaller periods of revival and instances of revival. Then you get to the New Testament, and the whole thing is a revival. Christ has come. You know, God has entered into the world. Uh, you have the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The whole New Testament is, you know, want to see an example of what does the church look like in revival? Well, that's kind of what it looks like. It's still a mixed bag. But the Spirit's at work, and things are happening. And since the close of the New Testament, there have been just periods of revival and goes like this. Uh, in, in, in our part of the world, uh, there was a great uh, awakening that started, began in 1740, in the early, mid-1700s. And then the second great awakening in 1790 and on. And, and in that second great awakening, there was an awakening uh, that really has affected, even over this far, I think, but it certainly affected the southeastern United States. It broke out in, in Cane, um, Cane River. Not Cane River. I can name a couple of churches in, in this area that in the last 40 years there have been, if you will, a mini revival of a local church or two. There are people in this room that have been affected by that revival at Plains Church long before I got there. So you're not going to ask the same rhetorical questions as the psalmist. That's what I'm getting to. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And the answer is always the same. Of course he will. And we can say, Lord, you've done it before. Do it again. There is a caveat. But let them not turn back to folly. Salvation is near to those who fear, who reverence, who stand in awe of, who worship Him, the God who gives the Bible. And then there's another caveat that comes out clearly in the study of revivals. He sends it in His own time. We pray confidently and we wait. Confidently. A lot more could be said, but uh, stop here. Suffice it to say this we need spiritual renewal, restoring, refreshing, revival. 
We almost always do. The only time we don't is when we're in the midst of revival. The rest of the time, we're generally in a downward spiritual spiral. And there'll be little bumps, but it's just the way life in the church is. It's the way the history of the church is. God's given it in the past. Let's ask him to give it again. Let's pray.